I invite you to stand as you are able in body or in spirit for the reading of our gospel lesson this morning. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, I mentioned during our announcements that we're going to have our disciple now for our students in the coming weeks where they, where they will go to uh, Christ Methodist down the road and hear some speakers and have some, some praise and worship music and go to homes for small groups and for things such as that. And a million years ago, back when I was, I, I, when I was a student, I may have been a, a student at Colin, uh, I went to a disciple now at First Baptist Brookhaven. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget the, the speaker that weekend said something that stuck with me throughout, throughout the years. To this, to today it still sticks with me. He said this. He said, if you want to change your life, if you really want to, really want to change your life, read a gospel. Sit down. And either in one setting or over several days, read a gospel. Read what Jesus actually did and what Jesus actually said. Don't, don't, take what, don't take from me, the preacher, what Jesus said or did. Don't take from the stuff you read what Jesus said or did. But actually go to the Bible and read from the Bible what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Around the same time, I read a, a phenomenal book by Philip Yancey entitled The Jesus I Never Knew, which basically is a record of him doing just that, actually going into the Bible and reading what Jesus did and what Jesus said and who Jesus was. That, can be, that is a life-changing, a life-shaking, a faith-shaking exercise is to actually read what the Bible says about Jesus. Now what you've been taught now, what others have told you, but what does the Bible actually say? Because here's what happens when we actually go and read a gospel. We, we see exemplified perfectly in Jesus the nature of who God is. Because the two parts of God's divine nature are that God is holy and God is love. And we have Jesus perfectly keeps those things in tension. We have to keep those two things in a perfect tension, that God is holy and God is love. Because what happens is when we lose one of those two parts, we don't get a full nature of who God is, and then we don't fully live out God's goodness. Because if all we see, y'all, if all we see is God's holiness, we never see God's love, then we'll never measure up. We'll never be good enough because none of our holiness ever measures up to that against God. If all we ever see is God's holiness and never see the love of God, then we'll quit. Why would you even try? Because you're never good enough. You'll make bad decisions. Likewise, if all we see is his love, but never his holiness, then hey, what's the matter what you do? Just go crazy. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Who cares? Just go crazy. Go hog wild. Because God loves you, right? Well, yeah, but he's also holy. 
We have to keep that dual nature of who God is, God's love and God's holiness together. And the Gospels demonstrate that perfectly because the folk that wouldn't be welcomed by anybody, that Samaritan woman who was rejected by everybody, guess who sat down and had a conversation with her about God? That'd be Jesus. This person that everybody else kicked out, he welcomed and loved. But when folks were too, uh, too, too high on their horse, thought they had it all figured out, guess who took them down about three notches and about three, le- three leg- legs and said, hey, if you don't follow me, you're missing the point. It's not about being a good person, but it's about following me and giving all that you have and following me. Jesus called them to be disciples and to follow him above all else. So we see that perfect tension displayed. The Gospels show us that. The Gospels show us that. The Gospels show us who Jesus is. And so I've been looking forward to this sermon because the Gospels, to me, are the heart of the matter. The Gospels are it, y'all. The Gospels show us who God is. Now, as Christians, we do not believe that the Gospels are more, are more inspired or more holy than anything else in Scripture. That was an early heresy in the church, that the Gospels were holier. No, no, no. No, the Bibles are not holier than the rest of the, God, the Bible. The, Bible the, the Gospels are not more inspired than the rest of the Bible. Uh, Amos is just as inspired as Matthew. Numbers is just as inspired as Luke. They're not better. But the Bible tells us in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So in other words, if you want to know who the Father is, if you want to know who the Father is, you have to look to the Son. The Son shows us who the Father is, the visible image of the invisible God. So we do not stand out of reverence to the Gospels because they're holier than the rest of the Bible. We stand out of reverence to the Gospels because they show us the heart of who God is. They show us God's heart in a special and in a unique way. That's why we stand out of reverence for them, because they show us God's heart in a beautiful way. We've been talking in this series, long story short, about the covenant, how the, how the law was the foundation for the covenant of the old people. So we see the law as the beginning of the covenant. Then we see the covenant lived out in the histories and the prophets and the histories and the wisdom. Then we see the prophets calling the people back to faithfulness to the covenant over and over again. That was the old covenant. Now we see in the New Testament the Gospels. The Gospels were given to us, as this passage says, that we know that Jesus is the Messiah and find life in his name. The Gospels are for us as Christians the defining point of our covenant. So just like in the old covenant, remember the covenant was given that the people could know that they were the people to whom the Messiah would come. They were the covenant people. Well, now that Christ has come, the covenant has been fulfilled. So in the old covenant, the law formed the covenant community. They lived it out. Well, for us as Christians in the new covenant, the gospel forms our covenant. The gospels show us the foundation and the formation of our covenant people. Then the rest of the Bible shows us how to live out that covenant. But for us, the gospel, Jesus Christ, born to a virgin, suffered, died, buried, resurrected, returning, are the definitive markings of our covenant relationship but not the old covenant of law in the Old Testament, but the new covenant of grace in the new, marked by the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to talk quickly, as Tim doesn't believe me, uh, about the Gospels and about what they are, about what they represent.
and what they teach us. Uh, a few weeks back, uh, Kim Clark in her children's moment gave, gave, I think, the best explanation of how the inspiration of Scripture works that I've ever heard. I don't know if you remember it. She was teaching, the, talking to the kids, and she had me, Tim, and Brian both write something on a piece of paper. We had to hold it up. And we wrote literally what she told us. You know, we just, okay, say that, and we wrote it. But we each wrote it differently and with different points of emphasis. My handwriting was messier than Tim's. I think Tim may have an exclamation point in his. Like, you know, like we communicated exactly what Kim told us to communicate, but we each had our own individual humanness within that communication. That is how the inspiration of Scripture works. God told Matthew, Mark, Luke, John what to write, but in that they also never lost their humanness. That's why the Gospels are going to read a little different because the Gospels are a narrative history. The Gospels are the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and his soon-to-be return. They tell the story of who Jesus is and was. They are telling us these stories. They are, they are what John says here. They are given to us that we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But they never lose their humanness as well because we see Matthew within his gospel and Luke within his, Mark, John. They're all, they all have a little bit of a different perspective on what happened. I'm going to explain why that matters and why we've got to read the totality of it for it to make sense. So there's four gospels, and we're going to talk about Acts as well because Acts is the second part of Luke's gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay, so Matthew. Matthew was called Levi in the scriptures. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. So Matthew, his gospel is going to be very Jewish influenced. You're going to see all over Matthew's gospel. You're going to see over and over again. Remember last week the prophets? We said most of the prophets that their, their teaching was on what was happening there, but they did have some futuristic elements about what was to come. Well, Matthew shows us those elements because over and over, Matthew, we'll see Matthew say, this was done to fulfill the prophet so-and-so. This was done to fulfill the prophecy of this. We see Matthew showing how the Old Testament and the Old Covenant was fulfilled and, and given to us in Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew has certain things. I'll give you an example. Matthew, if, if the gospel is the heart of the covenant for us as Christians, I would say, by the way, then the heart of the Gospels, ethically for us living out, is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount shows how we as Christians should live moving forward. Real quick, I'm going to chase a small rabbit. It won't take long. C.S. Lewis tells us that the one thing Jesus Christ cannot be is simply a good moral teacher. The only way Jesus' ethical teachings can have any importance in your life is if Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Because when you read the Gospels, you know what you see over and over again? The fact that Jesus Christ, as presented to us in the Gospels, truly believes he was the Son of God. You can't read the Gospels and not believe that Jesus Christ truly believed he was the Son of God. Okay? That's pretty agreeable when you read the Gospels. That makes him one of three things. A liar a lunatic, our Lord. Because when you read the gospel, he believes he's the son of God. So if he's a liar, he's lying about it, would you base your life on the ethical teachings of a liar? I mean, you can, but it's a bad idea, and I would not suggest it. Okay, 
Maybe he was crazy. Maybe he thought he was the son of God because he was crazy. Would you base your life upon the ethical teachings of a lunatic? Once again, bad idea. The only way we can actually take Jesus' ethical teachings and apply them to our lives is if we truly believe that he is who he says he was, which was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The only way Jesus' ethical teachings can have any importance or value in our life is if Jesus Christ is who he says he is. The one thing Jesus Christ simply cannot be is a good moral teacher. That's not an option. Either he is who he says he is, or his words have no meaning. He can't simply be a good, smart guy that has some good things to say. Either he's king of kings and lord of lords, or he's of no importance. So, okay, I'm done with that rabbit. In Matthew's gospel, though, so remember Matthew is Jewish, writing to a Jewish audience, using Jewish things. So in Matthew's gospel, what did I say the heart was? The Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes up on a mountain, and he says, you've heard it said... But I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus goes up on a mountain and gives to the people a new law for them to live by. So does anybody else in the Bible go up on a mountain and get a law? Who? Moses. Exactly. So for a Jewish audience, they would go, oh, 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 oh. So Jesus, it's just like Moses. For us as Christians, Jesus is our Moses. He's going on the mountain and giving us the law. Matthew takes the Old Testament truth and shows how it was actually pointing to Jesus and how the law was just getting us ready for Jesus and his teachings. Matthew is a Jewish tax collector writing to a Jewish audience. Mark, everybody says, what, what gospel should you read first? Always say Mark. Mark is the, the guy. If you're just going to pick a gospel to read, go with Mark, and here's why. Mark is the shortest, and Mark's not playing around. Mark doesn't have time for any of your small talk. Mark doesn't even have Christmas in it. Mark goes right to the baptism. Mark doesn't have time for all the frou-frou stuff. Mark's going right to town. And Mark, Jesus is always going and always doing, always going, always doing, always going, always doing. The word immediately is over and over and over in Mark. Mark is showing Jesus in the same way that a Roman leader would lead with power, with authority, and decisive. You thought Caesar was a good leader? No, no, no. Caesar's not a good leader. Jesus, he's a good leader. We see Jesus casting out demons. We see Jesus showing authority. We see Jesus moving quickly and decisively. So Mark is writing to a more Roman audience and showing how Jesus is actually the perfect leader. Not Caesar, not the generals, Jesus. Matthew, Jewish gospel written to a Jewish audience. Mark, Jewish, but writing to a Roman audience. So we see Jesus with power and authority and action, just like the Roman generals. In Luke, Luke's a Gentile. Greek is interesting. If you, if you were to take Greek, uh, the Koine the Greek that they wrote in, you have a very super intellectual version of Greek and a more common version of Greek. Luke was a Gentile doctor. And when you look at his writing in Greek, you can tell he was brilliant. You can tell Luke was the smartest person in probably the whole Bible. He was brilliant. And so Luke has to, Luke's gospel is basically a doctoral work. It's a thesis. I mean, it, it's full of information and research and things like that. Luke, Luke is where we have the story of Mary on, on Christmas Eve pondering these things in her heart. Luke has the angels. Luke has all this. But Luke is a Gentile. 
writing to a Gentile audience. So the Old Testament, not as big a deal to them because they don't know the Old Testament. There are Old Testament quotations, sure, but the Old Testament's not a big deal. But Luke is an outsider. Luke is an outsider writing to a bunch of outsiders. And he's showing them that Jesus has a place for them too. Because you know who, what we see in Luke? In Luke, we see the prodigal son who went off and was welcomed back in the family. In Luke, we see the lost coin. In Luke, we see the lost sheep. In Luke, we see that Jesus is the good shepherd who would leave the 99 sheep to go bring the one home. That he loves the one sheep so much he will leave the 99 to go welcome it in. I've heard one time that Luke is the gospel of the least, the last, and the lost. Luke is showing that we Gentiles have a place in the kingdom as well. And in Luke's gospel, remember how in Matthew he went up on a mountain and taught the law? Well, okay, in Luke's gospel, he does, this, he does the exact same teaching, except in Luke's gospel, he did it on a plane. Ah, ha, 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 see you Christians, your Bible has inconsistencies within it. How can you claim it's true if there's inconsistencies? Was it on a mountain or was it on a plane? Which one was it? Yes. It was both. It was both. Because in Matthew's gospel, remember, Jewish audio, or author, writing to a Jewish audience. Luke is a Gentile. You know how the Gentile philosophers would teach their disciples? On a flat, level surface. With all their disciples gathered around them. So to a Gentile audience... We see Jesus as the greatest philosopher. If Matthew is showing Jesus as the new Moses giving a law, Luke is showing Jesus as the, as the new Socrates or Plato or Aristotle, showing us what true wisdom looks like. So for a Gentile audience, they would go, oh, 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 so Jesus is the greatest philosopher. Much like, Oh, it would, it would click them and make sense. Now, here's the question. Which is it? Did he preach it on a mountain? Or did he preach it on a plane? Well, yes. He preached it on a mountain. He preached it on a, preached it on a plane. He preached it on a boat. He preached it with a goat. I mean, he preached it everywhere. Come on, y'all. You know preachers. He was a preacher. We all got a dead horse we love to beat. Come on. You think my wife doesn't know where I'm going when I start preaching before I say a word? Lord have mercy. She's heard me preach so many sermons. She's tired of them. Y'all probably are too. But you know where I'm going where, sometimes just by where I'm going. I'm sure Jesus preached this message over and over again in the variety of context. So we see Luke tell us the gospel, Jesus' story, but then we see Luke write a second volume, the book of Acts. Luke wrote that one as well. And so in the gospel, we see the narrative history of the church. In Acts, we see the narrative history. I'm sorry, in the gospels, we see the narrative history of Jesus. In Acts, we see the narrative history of the church. We see Peter preaching Pentecost. We see Paul getting saved and becoming the great apostle. We see all these things. So if he's telling us, Luke, telling us the covenant story in the Gospels, he's then showing how the covenant was lived out in Acts. So it's the second volume of the first work. They're both written to the same mentor, if you will, or the same, uh, to, to the same person, Theophilus. But in, Luke, in Acts, we see my favorite person in all the Bible outside of Jesus. We see Barnabas. We see Barnabas. Barnabas is my favorite person in the whole Bible outside of Jesus. Because here we see in Barnabas, um, Paul in Acts 9, he gets saved. Well, Paul gets saved on the way to Damascus, 
And Paul's on this special mission from the, from the high priest to destroy the church. Along the way to destroy the church, Paul meets Jesus and gets saved. So Paul shows up to the church and says this, hey guys, guess what? I'm one of y'all now. And they go, ha, 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 I don't know about that. Uh-uh. We ain't that dumb. One of us now. Yeah, right. Sure thing. You know what Barnabas does? Barnabas walks along beside him. And he encourages him. When no one else would believe in him, when no one else would care for him, when no one else would love him or welcome him, you know who welcomed him and loved him? Barnabas. Without Barnabas, we don't have Paul. Without Barnabas, we don't have Paul's works and Paul's writing because Paul, because Barnabas believed in Paul when no one else did. Later in the book of Acts, you know what we see? Apparently at some point, Mark, John Mark, the apostle, did something stupid that Paul didn't like. So Paul's getting ready to go on another mission trip. And Paul's like, I'll take any of y'all, but I ain't taking him. I ain't taking Mark. I'll take Timothy. I'll take Titus. I'll take Luke. I'll take any of them. But I ain't taking Mark because he done messed up. Who walks alongside Mark and believes in him and takes him with him? Barnabas. Without Barnabas, we don't have Mark. Without Barnabas, we don't have Mark who wrote the first gospel, which was the foundation for the rest of the gospels. Without Barnabas, we don't have Paul who wrote basically the rest of the New Testament. Without Barnabas, we don't have the New Testament. Y'all, the world is not changed by the greatest preacher. The world is not changed by the greatest song. Sometimes the world is changed by a life who's changed by somebody who believes in them. Y'all, our world needs Barnabases now. We got a lot of self-appointed prophets that know everything and specifically know what everyone else is doing wrong. But we need a Barnabas who will walk alongside the weak and the frail and the scared and say, I don't care if they don't believe in you, I do. Acts tells us about Barnabas. I love me some Barnabas. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but I say it was Barnabas because I think he's have a book in the Bible. There's no evidence he did. I just like Barnabas. So I'm going to say he wrote it because we don't know. So there you go. Love Barnabas. And then we have John. John, okay, remember when you talked talk to Wright in, the, in, in, the, in elementary? You answer the questions, who, what, when, where, and why? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are answering who, what, when, where. Like, their, their, their gospels all follow more or less the same path, like same basically plot point and story, timeline. They're, they're all more or less the same. They're all answering the who, the what, the when, the where. John, John's answering the why. John doesn't have time for your timeline. John, John doesn't have time to make sure everything fits together perfectly chronologically. The, one of the very last things Jesus does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is cleanse the temple. You know one of the first things he does in John's gospel? He cleanses the temple. John's not worried about getting all the timeline right or getting everything in perfect order. John's worried about what we see today. He's worried about recording this so that you will come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and have life in his name. That's what John's doing. John is answering the why. John's full of symbolism and light and darkness. So we see the heart of John, for me, is John 3.16, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would not believe would not perish. That's in a teaching to Nicodemus. In John's gospel, Nicodemus in, in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And for John, for Nicodemus to come at night, that's not saying it was just nighttime. He's saying Nicodemus came in the dark, in sin, in ignorance. He came to Jesus, and he encountered the light. John's gospel is full of light and darkness and powerful symbolism about grace. John's answering the why. John is deep, and John's mysterious. He's answering the why. What is the why? That you may come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Y'all, you can learn all the histories of the Gospels. You can learn chapter and verse. You can get all that if you want to. And that's right, you should. I would encourage you to do it. I love this stuff. The Bible is not written for information. The Bible is written for transformation. And you can have a head full of verses and knowledge. But if you don't have a heart, sanctify the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're just marking time. It's not about knowing the facts about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. This is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and have life in his name. That's what the Gospels are for, so that we can know Jesus. And y'all, there's no other knowledge as life-changing or as sweet as the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that if you don't know him as your Savior, today is the day that you make the decision to put your faith in him. Let's pray.